Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Dear listeners, do I have a treat for you. None other than Michael Patrick Rogan, coach of the PSIA Alpine team, that's Professional Ski Instructors of America, by the way, a ski tester for Ski Magazine for a quarter of a century, was Ski's instruction guru since Stu Campbell held that post, I believe. And he's also, by the way, one of the most beautiful technical skiers you will ever see. Well, thank you. He <laughs> well deserved. He has been elected to the PSIA demo team a record seven times. Dear listeners, may I present Mike Rogan? Welcome, Mike. Hi, Mr. Hogan. Great to be here and uh, and spend some time catching up with you and and talking about skiing and everything skiing. I, I love it. Oh, me too. I'm looking forward to this. Where are you now as we speak? Right now, I am in my home in South Lake Tahoe, California. And in what capacity did you work today? I worked as a ski instructor today at Heavenly Ski Resort. And what class did you have? I had two, actually. I had a group lesson of six first-time skiers in the morning. And then I had a family private in the afternoon. And they were, they were also beginners. And their ages ranged from eight to, I think, the patriarch was 35 or something like that. Wow. Did you lose a bet? (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm on your podcast, Jackson? No, No, because you had to teach beginners in the morning and then you got beginners in the afternoon. And here you are capable of coaching the absolutely most elite level of skiers we really have on our little planet. And (laughs) I have to say, it seems sort of casting... (laughs) a gilded carpet down in front of the customer and saying, would you like Mr. Rogan as your instructor? Look, I'm, I'm extremely fortunate. I get to spend, as you said, some time with some pretty great skiers. I get to spend a bunch of times helping ski instructors teach better. I get to do some, some interesting things, whether that be used to be with ski magazine. Sadly, it used to be. And along the way I get to do, I get to go to Portillo, Chile and, and work there. I love Jackson, I absolutely love teaching beginner adult group lessons. I really do. And when I'm at Heavenly, it's something that I, I look forward to and I really enjoy it to, to see a beginner or to be able to help a beginner get the spark that I feel about skiing for the first time is, is pretty special. And from the family privates, I mean, that's been a product that has really grown last couple of years with COVID. And I think it's wonderful to help a family learn together and help mom and dad understand what it takes to ski together as a family. Because I think there's, I mean, some of my, I wish I had those memories of my parents skiing together with me. Uh, they did not ski, although I did get to teach my dad and I did get to teach my mom, but we weren't a skiing family. So to ski, to see a family ski off down a beginner run everybody doing their own thing, little kids getting some freedom, mom and dad awestruck about how well their kids are doing and to get on the chairlift and see them all sitting on the chairlift together. I just, there, there's, there's almost nothing better to me as, as an instructor than seeing that happen. And to be a part of that is an amazing reward for a ski instructor. So I, I do it, volu- I do it voluntarily They pay me for it, but I, I do it 
with pride and and happily uh, at Heavenly, and I truly, truly enjoy it. You're like a human Hallmark card. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is just radiating <laughs> goodness. By the way, you since you have to deal with this dynamic of the uh, beginner skier, beginners yeah. here are are almost ipso facto going to be on rental equipment. Rental yeah. equipment varies from unbelievably wretched to somewhat less wretched. Yeah. How do you deal with some of the obstacles that you must face? Because, because you're not only overcoming a skier who's new to everything, but they're not always on the equipment that's most optimized towards <clears throat> standing on skis or, or learning. More often than not, the boots are way too big uh, because it's something that they've never felt or experienced. So they don't know what it is they sh- it should feel like. And there's a pretty good chance that, you know, that boot has zero to do with the shape of their foot at the moment. It has more to do with the person that was in it for the people that isn't it. You know, you, you do what you can with what you got. You, you tighten them up as best you can. You try and r- take them out of the walk mode to help uh, most rental boots. <laughs> you, you, you get them on the dear, right feet. Dear listeners, there are boots that have a, a walk and ski mode, believe it or not. Not that in some boots that they're that different, but nonetheless, yeah, it's yeah, very exactly. helpful to be in ski mode when it's yeah. going downhill. Yeah. yeah, Oddly enough, our beginner equipment has them and then backcountry equipment has them and, and nothing in between. But uh, you take, you know, you make sure they're out of ski mode. You buckle them as snug as you can get them. You do what you can with what you got. You hope that it, it works out. You do, again, you they're there. So what are you going to, I mean, the worst thing to look at somebody who's there for the first time that's excited to try it is go, oh, you got the wrong stuff on. I mean, talk about a kick in the gut, right? Right off the, before you even get started, they're doing it all wrong. <laughs> I mean, that's just, uh, that's just not the best foot forward. So you, so you deal with what you got, you make it work. Uh, if it's really bad, then you make some suggestions about, hey, the next time you come and we ski together, this is what would really be good to help your progress and you make some suggestions for the for the future how much of it is demonstration and how much of it is explanation i think mostly ski instructors have good intentions that being said we talk way too much and we do way too little well put and i feel like we are we should be at a point in our the history or life span that we should be doing things more first and talk about it when and if it needs to happen. And it may not. Is that uh, why it's easier to teach children than adults? Maybe in some regards. Because they don't ask why as often. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, some I I think sometimes well and, and you can also get away with I think a kid doesn't care why they do why why they're we let's just do this and let's go over here and you want to go over and, and see what that is, let's point our feet that way and go there. And and it's interesting that I feel like instructors that are really experienced and really good do the same thing with adults. Ones that aren't as oh god, aren't as good or experienced feel like they need to explain everything about everything it doesn't matter you don't need to know about the internal combustion engine to turn the key on your car (laughs) but some people get off on explaining it and some people as students get off on lowing about it it's always good to create your own language with your student and 
some people do really well in a mathematical world. So let's have a language that's based in skiing, but utilizing mathematics. Or some people are come to you and they are PTs and they know the body really well. And when it comes time to talking about or explaining something, they want to know what little thing to, to move. And that's, that's good. That's good information because it helps people understand what the goal is. To what, um, to what degree does it accelerate the learning process? I don't think it does. To be in the, to to be kinesthetically more aware than oh. those who's less kinesthetically aware. Well, well look, uh, I, I said I don't think it does, and then you finished the question. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think I think that to play any motor sport, motor skill sport, it doesn't. It never hurts to know where you are in space and what you're doing in that space and how to move around in that space. It never hurts, ever hurts. That being said, I, I so I, I guess I would say that I would much rather have a student who is coordinated than fit. Mm. We would go a lot further with coordination and taking the appropriate breaks and rest versus somebody who's easy fit, but is stiff as a board and uncoordinated. So I would I would take coordination over fitness and strength certainly any day. Well, you seem to have acquired. Well, you must have acquired your knowledge about instruction over a long span and an awful lot of lessons. What have you learned most about the actual art of teaching since when you first began and where you are now? I can remember the first lesson that I taught like it was yesterday and it sucked. It was terrible. I felt like I just, I knew nothing. I had very little experience and I had had a little bit of training. So I felt like I needed to tell everything and explain everything that I thought my students needed to know or should know. And now that I feel like I've gotten a Man, I don't have it all figured out, but I got a pretty good handle on it that my best, my best jobs are when I manipulate the environment, whether that be the speed that they're going or their trajectory down the hill or the, the line that I try and, and show around the bump. It's based in those types of things, not in not in the mechanics of things. I mean, I think, I think students come, we, they come to ski to an, a school or instruction instructors, you know, they want, they want some safety. They want control. They want some options. Hey, if this happens, do that. If that happens, do this. They want some line choices. Like how do I nav- negotiate a crowded slope or a, an icy patch? They want those types of things. I don't know if everybody really needs to know what goes into the technique of all of that. There are certain things that are good to know. It's it's always good to know to feel the front of your shins against your boot versus the back of the you know the back of your calf against the boot. It's always that's a good thing to to know. Be in the middle of your ski, stand neutral in your ski boots. But I don't know if people really need to know as much as they want. There's a time for it. Like I say, there's a, there's a time for understanding what goes into making the ski do what you want it to do. And the more you know that, I feel like 
the better you are going to be as a skier. It's always good to be a student of the sport and educated about what your intent or your goal is. But I feel like in lots of lessons, I do better when when I manipulate the environment, I manipulate the, the snow or, the, or the, the slope or the line or the lighting or where we choose to go for what reason and let them figure it out. If I put people in safe places where they can explore and slide, then they can explore and slide and learn stuff and I don't have to teach them. I just shepherd them along a little bit with a little create bit of encouragement. Create the right conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Like if the snow is really fast, I mean, right now it's beautiful here in Lake Tahoe. Everybody should be taking a ski vacation in California right now. The snow is amazing, uh, but the snow is cold. So it's slow. A week ago before it snowed, the snow was frozen and it was fast. So you take your time when it's frozen with folks and you put them in situations where they can be successful or you find snow that's softer and you, you, you allow them to figure it out today you could go anywhere and the snow was soft and it was cold and it was slow and they were successful. And it was, it was, it was an easy teaching day. The environment was really user-friendly. So you've spent a long time cultivating and learning and building upon your, your knowledge is sort of using an old metaphor, the snowball rolling down the hill, the more you do it, the more you learn and you just yep. keep getting more and more perspective. But if you look back to the beginning of that arc when you were just a little tiny snowball before you became a bigger snowball. <laughs> when I couldn't um, roll. And what we call in PSI 8 speak, a, a level one instructor. What advice would you now, now that you're a big snowball, what advice would you give the little snowball about what to expect? Anyone who's a level one wants to be a level two. Yep. <laughs> so what do you do to get there? And then, because again, advancement, as you and I both know, the next step is even more significant because the level yeah. three is expected to do everything. And everything means just what the word implies normally. Yeah. Yep. Um, so it's a, it's not this. In other words, as a staircase is not quite an equal riser in each step. Correct. Um, but what, what advice would you give the level one? And then what advice would you give the level two to make the most of where they are in the ladder and to improve their abilities to reach the next run? Yeah. How honestly can I speak here, Jackson? <laughs> well, I have an extensive editing team. Oh, perfect. Yeah. You, you know, my, my father told me one time, I, I don't know when it was, but he looked at me and, and I feel like I always see him as foghorn leghorn and I am the little chicken hawk uh, in the Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah. And if your audience can relate to that, then... We got to look for a young man. Never mind. But anyway, <laughs> he looked at me and said, son, you need to start to pay some <clears throat> attention. And it was about one certain thing in particular. But I think of level one's instructor and I think, you know what? They just need to pay attention to what's going on around them. If they have students that are struggling are they the cause of that struggle? If they have more experienced instructors around them, what are those people doing? If a class over here is having success and you aren't over here, go over there and do what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> 
because I can tell you that the students know and the students can recognize like, wow, what they're doing over there looks like a lot of fun. And what I'm doing over here, I don't feel like I'm having that much fun that they're, so I guess paying attention to what's going on around you and being observant of not only other students, but other coaches and being observant again of, of your environment, just start to pay some attention. And because we can get so focused, we can get, and it's a beautiful thing that we get so focused on the people in front of us and the students that we have that we stop. We don't, we don't stop to look up and go, Oh, wait, wait a minute. I feel like I'm doing a great job because I'm giving them everything I have. I am pouring my heart and soul into this, <laughs> but we haven't moved in 15 minutes or, <laughs> or, and, and, and time flies when I'm, I'm probably doing it right now. I'm talking way too much uh, yeah. about a question, but it goes mountains are at elevation. You got to have some elevation to have a mountain. So people are usually at higher elevations that they want when you spend all of your time walking around, trying to do little scooter turns and this, that, and the other thing. People came and took a ski lesson. They didn't take a come. They didn't come to take a walking lesson. Yeah. You got to learn to walk. Yeah. You got to understand how your equipment works, but get people sliding, get them searching to glide more. And those are the people, those are the students that are successful. And those are probably the coaches that are successful. So pay some <clears throat> Attention as the world passes you by, in quote of my father. <laughs> and then to get from level two, yeah. which is already an achievement, but it's 100%. nowhere near the achievement level three is. It is an achievement, and it's a lot of work, and a lot goes into it, and you got to understand a lot. And it, it means a lot to a lot of people that attain their level two and, and level three and level one for the matter. I mean, these are, we, there are people that are that could have retired five times over and they get caught up in getting these certification levels within an organization about ski instruction. And it's just beautiful to see a person who is so successful in one part of their life, really put everything that they have into attaining a level of certification for uh, an organization that governs ski instruction in the U S it's, it's wonderful to see. So I tip my hats to them. That being said, you know, a, a level two instructor, knows a little and they know a little about a lot but it's time to start taking that little amount of knowledge and figure out how to be a little bit more creative with their teaching oftentimes we get caught up on drills and exercises and progressions and progression building and that's such a big part of what we do but also in doing that you forget about the person in front of you and you end up presenting your information to someone and not facilitating that person to try and learn. There's a big difference between presenting information and teaching or helping people learn. When you present information, the audience doesn't matter. It could be a college lecture with an auditorium filled with people or a gymnasium. The lights are shining on you, you're at the podium, you're expounding upon everything that you know and what they should remember and take notes on. Uh, and the audience could change in the, in the, the lecturer, the presenter, they wouldn't know that there was a change in the audience. You could have a break and bring in 
500 new people, turn the lights back on and it still looks like you can't see anybody out there. So it doesn't matter. But when you, when you are concerned with teaching or helping somebody learn, then the audience does matter. And you're basing every decision that you make based on their needs and what they would like, not what you think they should know or you want them to hear. And those are, they may not seem like much, but those are pretty polar opposites when you really get into it. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Switching themes just a little bit. You've been a PSIA demo team member for seven terms. 1996. Um, I beg your pardon? 1996 is when I first made the this what you're calling what is the what you're calling the demo team yeah yeah well do, yep. is there a better team is there well, a better term of art no uh, well yes there is I mean we are actually the national alpine team the demo team is what everybody can relate to it's one of those things that we we you know who do we demonstrate for what do we do what is, what is this demo team thing it's the easiest most remembered way to talk about this but we do very little demonstrating. We do a lot more coaching and teaching about how to teach better. It's like a coaching institute, if you will. Yeah. 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 There's a group of 18 on the Alpine side. There's representation of all of the disciplines and and it's a four-year term. You need to be level three certified. And then every four years, there's a tryout for this Alpine team in in different disciplines. And they, we serve a term of, of four years. Yeah. To pass your finals, <laughs> is it what old-fashioned figure skating used to be like, where you had to you know, draw these perfect figures on the snow and you'll be awarded according to your ability to immaculately demonstrate the art? Yeah, yeah, there's some of that for sure. You know, I mean, again, as educators, we need to be able to ski for our students. And in, in the process of that, be able to demonstrate properly. And if a picture is worth a thousand words, be able to show them, if you do it this way, this is what happens. If you do it that way, this is what happens. Here's how you're doing it. Can you see in this? And now here's, here's the way that we're striving to do it for a change. Can you see that? And when you start to make that connection and be able to show that picture, you get to use a thousand less words. I noticed that's exactly what you do on some of your videos. Would you share with my dear listeners how they can see some of your instructional videos on the uh, YouTube channel? Yeah. Sean Warman, S-E-A-N-W-A-R-M-A-N. He has a, a YouTube channel and he and I created a bunch of videos. I've certainly done a bunch for PSIA. So if you were post right in my name, Michael Rogan, uh, R-O-G-A-N skier or coach or whatever that you'll you'll get a bunch there i've done a bunch with nordica most recently about taking your family skiing and and the thing a campaign called family time and how to get your family out skiing together and those were a lot of fun because we took out parents that weren't ski instructors and kids that weren't skiers and went through the whole step that they steps that they had to go through to get from home or the hotel to the ski area, to the snow, to the magic carpet, up the hill and around. And those were, those were really a lot of fun because the, you know, the kids just did what they wanted to do and, and moms and dads kind of shepherd them around. Um, so, I was so, thinking in particular of some of your segments where you 
sort of show the do's and don'ts in other uh, words. Yeah. Upper body rotation and people that sort of pivot around the by throwing yeah. their, their skis around. Uh, you are a wonderful mimic of exactly that which you do not want to teach. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Stu Campbell. <laughs> hey, let's, well, you mentioned Stu. Let's let's. Uh, he, by the way, yeah. your listeners, he, Stu Campbell is no longer with us. Absolute peach of a human being. Always greeted everyone with a smile. I don't recall him ever saying an unkind word about any soul. But he also was a master of simplification yep. of the teaching secrets. Would you speak to, in Stu's honor <laughs> to, would, to simplification, if you will? Hmm. I'd love to talk, speak in Stu's honor about anything about Stu Campbell. An amazing man, incredible human, instrumental in, in my education. And I was fortunate when I moved to Heavenly Ski Resort from, at that time, I was working in Vermont at Pico and in Portillo, Chile. I came here to follow the ski school director, Jimmy Ackerson, but met Stu and Stu tried me out with some of his articles for ski magazine. He thought that the camera favored me, that I took a good picture as he, he would say. So he asked if I would become more and more and more a part of these, these articles. He was the director of instruction at ski magazine and Stu impressed upon me always a, like you say, how to make it simple. Let's not talk instructor speak. Let's talk public speak. So I've always had that in the back of my head when it comes to talking and explaining uh, skiing. And also, he was really good at teaching me how to become a good demonstrator because we did articles where I would we would do a a correct and an incorrect or here's the here's what's happening in this situation and here's what needs to happen in that situation. We always did these comparisons of good, bad, yin, yang, try this, this versus that, or, or whatever it was. And he always said, he was always good to say, I couldn't see that. I need to sh- more. And whatever that was, I need a little bit more rotation of your upper body. I need a little bit less rotation of your upper body. I need a little bit more counter rotation of your upper body. I need the skis to do this in the snow. I need to see them go from wide apart to narrow to wide apart. Now I need to see them go from a snowplow position to parallel and then a diverging position. I need to see the inside ski make one track and the outside ski make another track in the snow. And I mean, I'd learned so much from that man just asking me to to show on film on a one-dimensional medium, a page of a magazine, how to show people what they could look like and what they could, what they do look like and what they could look like. And Stu was artful at then explaining that. I remember a little pamphlet, well, pamphlet's not kind enough a word. It was a, a booklet that yeah. he and Tim Petrick put together. Yeah. To just try to simplify this whole you know, weight change. I mean, yeah. One of the ways of simplifying skiing is to say you're walking downhill. You you're gonna you're gonna put one weight on one foot, you're gonna put weight on the other foot, you're gonna put weight on the one. You know, if there's another human movement that most resembles skiing, it's walking. <laughs> it's yeah, not, it's not that strange uh, series of movements. You just have to be know that you're on a hill, so you have to be pitched a little more forward than you probably planned on being, mm-hmm. <laughs> and voila, everything starts to work. Yeah. Um, yeah. That book was called good things to know about sliding on snow. By the way, dear listeners, it was 
very much a pictorial yep. explanation. And it correlated movements that you did in skiing. I remember with snow bikes, there must yep. have been some other, uh, maybe mountain bikes. I can't remember what other, there was another sort of body yep. body to equipment, you know, correlation that they made. Yeah, it was, was a book about all kinds of sliding tools. That was when, at the time when Booth Creek owned North Star and North Star was, uh, was allowing people to get onto the mountain with skis, snowboards, ski bikes, ski scoots, a thing called the ski fox, snow blades. But it was all about, look, if, if you want to go fast, point your tool down the hill. If you want to go slow, point your tool up the hill. You know, things that were universal to any of those things. One thing I found sort of non-universal was the terror I felt on the bike when <laughs> yeah. it picked up a lot of speed. <laughs> yeah. That felt pretty unique. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it isn't it amazing how different how the same thing of sliding you can get on a pair of skis, Jackson, and have a ham sandwich and talk on the phone and uh and and ski down a mountain looking as elegant as ever. Uh, but you do, you'd suddenly go five miles an hour on a snow bike and, and you get crippled with apprehension. I'm with you. Jumping the rails entirely. You also worked for the U.S. ski team. I don't know if that relationship continues, but I found it awe-striking, if that's a word, that the boundary between coaching and instruction normally is pretty clear. And for you to transition, as I understand it, at their invitation to work with their younger talent to so that they get their, their, their skills together, shall we say, using the word skills to substitute for another word. <laughs> Talk to me about your relationship with the U.S. ski team and dispel any myths I may have just created and tell us what actually went on. Well... Yeah, I had a job. I've always been fascinated with ski racing. I think that is a it's a place where we can learn an awful lot. It's just good to understand ski racing and going fast is good for general public skiing. I know that that might be a, a little bit against the the modern thinking about safety, but but you need to go fast when it's appropriate, where it's appropriate, within your own ability. But skiing fast is good for you. It tests your basic stance and how you react to situations. But you got to do it safely, especially with the crowds that are existing in, in the ski world these days. But anyway, Patrick Remmel, uh, an Austrian from the Solden Valley, was in charge of the U.S. ski team. He started this program called the NTG, the National Training Group. And myself and a coach by the name of Thomas Earhart, who now works in Burke, Vermont, he and I started were the two coaches for this program called the NTG, the National Training Group. And the goal of that group was to get the best junior kids together and skiing together and racing together and training together and traveling together because they were going to, if they were successful, they were going to continue to move on together. I mean, you don't talk about ages in ski racing. You talk about birth years. So the 99 birth year 99s and 2000s, they all traveled and went to the same races together. So if you got the best of the best around the country together and put them in a laboratory and mashed them together, you know, the, the idea of training around the best to be at your best, everybody would elevate everybody's game. Was and this modeled on any other country's system of youth development? 
probably. I mean, Patrick Rimmel is is a really smart Austrian ski instructor. I think it's a little bit challenging with the size of the U.S. versus Austria. Uh, certainly different in the culture between the U.S. and Austria, but lots of good Alpine nations that are smaller in scope and size. You know, they do that. They have places where the best of their country get together and train together. And the goal of this place was, can we, uh, and there's always been a development team. There's always been junior Olympics. There's always been this, but I feel like this was a, a really good attempt of trying to get these kids prepared from a, from a technique point of view and from a racing preparation point of view and from a travel point of view to get them ready to be able to handle the next step because we just have it too easy. I know that skiing is expensive and that's a huge thing that needs to get addressed. Who has access to our sport and how much it costs. But once you're in that game, we, we also have it too easy in the U S and, and there's lots of stories about people that have worked hard and come from nothing to become champions. And we're, we will always have that. And, and any sport will always have that. But, but when you go to Europe and, and you got to be prepared to, to ski race one day, get in the car, drive, stay in a smoky hotel that you're not used to in a language that you don't know at night that you're unsure of uh, with food that you're not used to and get up and have to do that day in and day out. Uh, it's amazing how many people are unprepared for that lifestyle when that's what they're asking to do and hoping to do to be successful. And it is a, you go to Europe for a season and you got to figure out how to live there. And I feel like the people that can handle that have a leg up on then going out and performing within the starting, the red and the blue gates. So that was the goal of this program. And my job as, as a ski instructor was to help them with the basic technique so that when they got moved up, that the coaches didn't need to deal with that stuff. They could deal with what the coaches were really, really good at, which is setting up environments within a, within a race and training arena, setting up training courses, talking about line talking about tactics, talking about speed generation and speed maintenance and speed control. Yes, there is speed control in ski racing. If not, you're in defense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we have lots of junior ski racers that spend a lot of time in the fence. And that is part of, that's a big part of, I think, your skiing IQ is understanding how far you can push something before you go, nope, this is not going to work out and I'm going to quit now so that I can try it again tomorrow versus nope, I'm going to hang on and never let go. And now I've got to rehabilitate until next year. Well, uh, one way or another, American Alpine racing has continued to either find in some cases or manufacture in other cases, mm -hmm. truly world-class, great racers, undeniably with single names, Bodie, Lindsay, Michaela, Darren, Ted. Yep. Somehow that happened, despite the advantages of a European environment, which is very different from ours, but also, also because it's sort of macro-cultural in the way it's supposed to micro-cultural as it is over here, it's a different soil for skiing. How much of our athlete's success at the end of the day is because of their sheer 
bloody talent for finding speed, which as you know, is a, is a gift in a way. 100%. And how much of it is coaching, training, and all the other stuff, you know, the culture, dealing with cultures and you know, all the other interference or flack, if you will. Yeah. Look, you can find examples of both. I don't know personally and in, in, in some cases, in some examples, but well, I do know personally in some examples because I've seen it, but there are people that just love to go fast and have the courage to do so time and time and time again, consequences be damned. They are so good at what they do that they can be dumb about how they do it. <laughs> I am not dishing those folks by any stretch of imagination. I'm in awe of their sheer talent, ability, and courage. And then you have folks, they need to learn and understand, and you go about it in a different way of going, okay, I now have the skills and I have the technique that I can, I mean, I look at it like a coat hanger sometimes, Jackson, you know, if you got a, a good, strong coat hanger, you can hang a couple of pairs of pants, a couple of shirts and a few jackets. And then, you know, you can hang a lot of stuff on a good sturdy coat hanger. Whereas if you have a flimsy coat hanger, you put two pair of blue jeans on it and it starts to droop. You put a coat on it and it just folds in it. So it can't handle the the strain of more stuff hanging onto it, whether that be a difficult corset or a difficult hill or difficult snow conditions. And that's this holds true to skiers in general. How much challenge can you, how much weight can you hang on your coat hanger to still work within the closet? Does, does the minute that you change up one variable, it it kind of folds on you. So that might have been a tangent, but I, but I feel <laughs> but I feel like I feel like you can have both. You can have people that are really smart and gifted. I mean, uh, an example would be, you know, Bodie Miller is has always been considered a really smart, intelligent skier even though he was so smart that results be damned. He knew that he knew that he could do what he wanted to do. He just needed to get into the right situation and then he would prove everybody wrong. And the world would be frustrated seeing that he was in the green, he was winning the race and not having a mistake or not finishing. That drove the public world nuts because we wanted to see Bodie Miller and an American win and be successful. Whereas, as I understand, I, I've never had that. I've met him. We've worked together with Nordica at one time. We share a Nordica poster together a long, long time ago, but I've never had the chance to talk to him. But I feel like he was a person who said, look, I know that I can do this and I don't care what the rest of you think. And I'm going to keep trying until I do it because I want to prove that to myself. The rest of you be damned about my results. I want this part of the process to be important, not the outcome to be important. Which was, was antithetical to a certain yeah. you know, American sort of Vince Lombardi win at any cost sensibility. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, I, I I think there's examples of that. River Radimus is, I mean, this kid, he was a part of the NTG. He was one of the first kids that signed up. His parents were one of the first parents to sign up River. Uh, but Aldo Radimus is a skiing genius. His mom, Sarah, is a skiing genius. And River grew up doing all kinds of weird things on skis. And he has a skier IQ that is now that he's matured, he was much more talented than potentially his body was able to hold. 
but now his body has gotten to a place where it can hold and handle the stresses of what World Cup ski racing is. His mind is brilliant and his skills, his technique, I mean, he can do things on skis that most of us couldn't even imagine. So his skier IQ is, is really good. There's bunches of examples. I, I, I know Michaela Schifrin a little bit, not a ton. And we talk about the brilliance of how quick she came on the scene. That woman has worked and worked and worked and worked and worked for her life with her mother and the coaches. Uh, I mean, Mike Day is, is a genius. Brandon Dykstrahouse is a genius. Jeff Lackey, who is, was her coach recently, is also, I mean, these guys are, these guys are really smart about what they do and they use technology well. Plus, you had somebody who was a ski instructor that helped her out. And she's gone about it in a very pragmatic way. She started with tech. She got became the world's best at that and then started to dabble into speed events and now is a very formidable, very formidable speed skier. And right again, because her her technique can hold it and she's prepared for some of the challenges that's come out. And then you you look at a person like Breezy Johnson, who I wish the most huh, the most success for because she's amazing. For the last couple of years when she was injured, we got to spend some time together. And she was just learning the whole time and starting to, to really understand her skiing. And she tells a story of thinking that she could just arc her way into any turn. Like, I just, I feel like I could just arc it. That was fast. So I would just carve into any turn, but I couldn't deal with what came after that. And she started to learn how to deal with what came after arcing into another turn and making some adjustments. And I mean, she had a, a, a bunch of podiums two years ago. She was on her way to beautiful things in skiing second places a bunch i mean she is one of the world's best speed skiers and unfortunately she got injured again and, and has to go through the process again but but i think breezy johnson will be another great name in american skiing when she comes back you spoke about the challenges that american racers face being up against european counterparts to sort of blend our themes today sort of shuffle yep. the deck how does europe and America differ in how they handle the whole business of ski instruction. I think about this a bunch, but I, I need to think about it a little bit more to get my thoughts clear because I have never taught in Europe. But you've um, gone to interski, yeah, you've yep. seen the environment, you've also been over there in the culture. And yep. to me, it's very clear that the ski instructor is held at a different level of regard in the European yeah. resort hierarchy. Yeah, <laughs> well, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, for sure. I, I think in a lot of cases, the ski school director was a person of regard, whether they were an Olympian or a, a medalist in the Olympics or a World Cup winner. So therefore, you had a certain level of street cred or chops. And anybody who trained under that person, therefore, must have gotten their tutelage. So therefore, they should have their street cred or their chops. I feel like in a lot of places, ski instructors are part owners. So therefore they have a little bit of profit sharing at the end of the season. And I also feel like it is because it's so highly regarded as a sport and a culture, the instructor is regarded as somebody of education. Uh, it might not be 
university or academic education, but the stuff that goes into a, to making a good ski instructor, I mean, we got to understand human behavior and child development, physics and equipment and snow surfaces and biomechanics and psychology. So a lot goes into it. And I feel like that's universal. It is something that you could do from an early age and look to say, I'm going to become a ski instructor. And there is a career path for you in Europe. Uh, when you look at becoming a ski instructor, it usually is something that you stumble upon in a, in a gap year, or you're looking to try out because you want to go to a ski town. And there isn't necessarily a very clear path to long-term success. There's a path to get there. And there, there's a shortage of ski instructors, and there will be a shortage of ski instructors for the next couple of years, at least. So therefore, because there's a shortage, okay, can you fog a mirror? Great. Here's a coat. Go take these 10 people and off you go. <laughs> when you have a small army of instructors yeah. at a mega resort, yeah. the, the guys in the last, the back of the phalanx, the back of the army, you know, their bayonet's not as sharp as the guys in the front. And that is the way with anything. I mean, there are 33,000 registered members within PSIA. When you have anything that is as big as 33,000, you're going to have a range of ability levels. The good part is that the organization is trying to help all of those ability levels progress and get better. But there are probably twice as many people teaching skiing or coaching skiing that aren't a part of that organization. So where you find your education, how you get it, it's a seasonal job. It's done a lot with foreign students from Argentina and other countries, and they work hard and provide a great resource, but not everybody figures out how to make it work for 25, 30, 40, a career length of time to get a career length of experience to be really good at it. The tools are there to get good, as good as you can be, but it's not looked on as well or positively, I think, as the as the European. That being said, my work at Heavenly and my bosses push that everybody gets better and works hard to get better. So it's a challenge, but again, there are all kinds of ski instructors that that aren't a part of an organization where they can get better or improve. They just do it on their own. And that doesn't bode well for the long-term longevity and that street cred and chops that maybe our European counterparts get to. And let's be honest, ski instruction came to the US from Europe. So from the get-go, Stein Erickson, Austrian, Swiss, Norwegian, French gods and goddesses were, they brought it to us. So they already were, they already had that status. They didn't have to find that or create that. They came with that status way, way long, long time ago. Correctly observed. Now let's flip the globe. <laughs> you work year round. <laughs> Our dear listeners may not know that Mike also is, I believe, the, is it proper to call you the general manager of the Portillo Resort? I am the operations manager of Portillo Resort. The operations manager. Yeah. Operations manager for Portillo Resort. Uh, how did you establish your relationship with the family owners of this wonderful Chilean resort? Uh, the, the Purcells, Henry Purcell and Miguel Purcell, who are, are my bosses. Uh, I went to Portillo in 1989 looking to, again, uh, you look at the European, what we just talked about a little bit, more flipping the globe, trying to get those that education, trying to get those uh, experiences and exposure and street cred and chops 
I figured you got to do it year round. And, and I wanted to, I, I really wanted to get good at this. So there's only a couple places you can go. You can go to Australia and New Zealand, or you can go to Chile and Argentina. In this case, I got fortunate and, and found myself in Portillo, Chile. The first year in 1989, there was no snow. I arrived on the 4th of July, not a flake of snow on the ground, and I fell in love with the place. I had to <laughs> My kind of place, no snow. <laughs> I had to wait until the 26th of July to ski because it had just snowed five feet, and I fell in love with the place. It was something that I went, look, this is a place where I could, it's really interesting, it's neat, it's different than I've experienced. It was easy for me to get there financially as, as a dumb 20-year-old kid. I didn't take a whole lot of resources. That helped. But I, I just fell in love with the place and the culture and the way that the Purcell family looks at what a ski experience should be. And, and I align with the way that they think about skiing. And it's been a year-round vocation ever since. In a few quick strokes, describe this somewhat unique hotel resort environment in Portillo? You know, people equate it to a cruise ship, a dock cruise ship. It is basically a hotel. There's a couple of outbuildings and a couple of chalets. And it is in the middle of the Andes Mountains. And if every pillow has a head on it, it holds about 460, 500 people. And basically Monday through Friday, that's the only people that are there skiing. And you have 1,250 acres. So you have a place the size, roughly the size of maybe Alpine Meadows to get a sense here in, in California. And you have 450 people in all of that area. There's a lot of room to roam and not see people. There's no television in the rooms. The hotel was built in the 40s. So the rooms are kind of small, although they're well decorated and assembled. There's one big living room. There's one big dining room, and the goal is is to be in snowboard and get to know people and enjoy having a civilized ski day. The lifts open at nine, and they close at five. So normally here in the U.S., where you know we're used to nine to four, or some in some places earlier than that, we go nine to five. So you can take a, a break in the middle of the day and, and go skiing. You know, you can take a break and jump into the swimming pool. If you, if you feel like it, then did you, you then go jump back over up. the swimming pool in that Warren Miller feature that I <laughs> saw you in, or did you just merely merely jump over the entire outdoor deck? <laughs> yes, it is not. I did not jump over the swimming pool. Lots of times they film it, but I jumped over what is Tio Bob's restaurant. Well, I almost jumped over Tio Bob's restaurant. I came up a little short, <laughs> but <laughs> a little uh, bit of a compression on landing. Yeah, Chris Patterson was the photographer. And he, he said, Hey, Mike, come out and ski with us. You, you really should come out and ski in our movie for us. And I'm like, Chris, you bring athletes down here. They're the headliners. You don't need the, the ski school director at the time or a mountain operations guy at the time. You don't need me in it. You got all of these world-class skiers. And he says, well, we're going to go jump over the restaurant. If you come up short and you have a good crash, I guarantee you'll make the movie. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I was not, was not my plan to come up short. My plan was to make it, but just barely, but I miscalculated it and came up short. No ill effects after that. Uh, and once I landed, ejected out of my skis and did a front flip without my gear on, I stood up and looked over at Chris and he smiled and said, 
you absolutely made this movie. <laughs> uh, but anyway, but Portillo is a cool place. It's about the skiing. It's about, it's about community and getting to know people. When, when you're in a dining room with people from Chile, Argentina, Brazil, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, the U.S., and you're hearing four or five different languages while you're having dinner. And the walls are, are made of, in the dining room, are, are leather. So it's a classy place and it's good plateware. And there are maitre d's and waiters and bus people. But yet at the same time, the kids are, are welcome to fall asleep on the floor and have the run of the place. It's just a cool thing. And in what has become our world now about your own little family unit and protecting that unit and bubbles and we can't expose ourselves to this and that and the other thing. I hope that Portillo sees a renaissance of people getting back to getting to know other people versus, oh, we don't want to associate with them because we can't spread our whatevers. I hope that skiing sees a renaissance of sitting at T.O. Bob's in an afternoon and me never knowing you, Jackson, and meeting a new friend that we decide that this was so fun. Let's do it again next year and seek each other out in the rest of our lives. I hope we get back to that. Portillo is, is a huge, huge catalyst to that type of thought process. And the Purcells cultivate it. They think about it. They dream about it. They wish upon it. And when you can get people that come to Portillo in the hustle and bustle from the States, and you can just see the weight shed off of them on a Tuesday when they go, okay, I get it. I understand this place. I can relax and let my kids be off by themselves and explore with other kids from Argentina or Brazil or, or Canada or somewhere else in the US. And, and it's okay. It's a safe place for kids to explore and parents to allow kids to explore and parents to do their own ex exploration as well. It's just a, it's a beautiful thing to, to watch come alive. And I hope it comes alive again. Speaking of relationship building, our relationship built over time as we reuned at the Ski Magazine annual ski test year after year after year. And it was in that environment that I also discovered the other side of Mike Rogan, <laughs> who seems, uh, dear listeners, on the surface to be this absolute perfect gentleman, teetotal. I never saw him order anything stronger than water normally uh, at a normal dinner environment. But you make it a competition. <laughs> you make it something where there's going to be winners on this side of the boat race table. and There's going to be losers on the other side of the table. And Michael Rogan will put down more Irish car bombs than you would think someone of his normal proportions would be able to handle. But he will not only handle it, it's like he trained for it his entire life. Look, damn it, I've trained to drink. Yes. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time developing my drinking skills. And this ne'er-do-well shows up who seems to drink nothing more than maybe strong tea, and he <laughs> puts us all under the table. Explain this phenomenon, Mr. Rogan. If I give your listeners the, the honest truth, which I think everybody enjoys in these types of conversations, my dad was a pro. So I have some genetics that said that I could handle this, which is, <laughs> which is, which, which is one of the reasons that I I've decided not to. And I don't drink much or at all for that matter. But when a gentleman by the name of Felix McGrath, 
who is at that point in time, he was fresh off the U.S. ski team. He has had World Cup success. His son, Artel, is having tremendous World Cup success pre and post an, uh, an injury who races for Norway. Sadly, we lost him to Norway. His mother is Norwegian and Felix is from the, the States. But Felix was an absolute pro at hazing the rookies uh, at the magazine test. And Felix would go, you got a drink, you got a drink, you got a drink. Come on, you blah, blah, blah. And he had to use every four letter word that you could think of to us rookie class in the magazine test to, to drink more, to try and get us drunk. And I had had enough at one point in time. And unbeknownst to Felix McGrath, there's a custom in Chile, this thing called a Chili Willy, where you actually take the bottom of a, you take a wine glass, flip it upside down, and you feel the little dimple with Pisco, which is Chili's liquor. It's made out of uh, grape stem seeds and skin. It's a little bit like tequila, maybe a, uh, a little bit, but it's a, or a, or a clear grappa or gluva. I don't know. It's, it's that level of, you, you drink it to get drunk. You don't drink it to enjoy it necessarily. Or you, you mix it in, you mix it in and it makes a great Pisco sour. But the number one goal, if you don't add enough powdered sugar is you're there to get drunk. But anyway, uh, this thing in Chili Willy uh, called Chili Willy, where you take the wine glass, flip it upside down, you fill the dimple with Pisco and then you snort it. Ooh, and, ooh. <laughs> and and that is do not try this at home ladies and gentlemen it's it's terrible it is it's just it's everything that you could imagine painful in the world it's like that combined together and stuck up your nose but this is kind of a tradition in a in a bar called la posada with the, with the groups of employees and but anyway fast forward felix mcgrath he's all egging us on to drink and i said felix that's enough with these car bombs but i'll do one more and then you're going to do a shot my way, our way, as the rookie class way. Felix was all proud, tough guy. Yeah, okay, whatever. So we did his car bomb. It was myself, Erica McConnell, Todd Casey might have been in there. Anyway, a group of rookie testers. And then we did his car bomb. I said, I got this. Flipped over the wine glass, put in tequila because we didn't have Pisco. Looked at Felix and said, the next one is yours. And I stuck my nose on it and snorted it, knowing what to expect. And did everything in my power to hold it back like the macho man, fierce competitor that I wanted to be. And Felix looked at me and said, are you out of your effing mind? And we never had a problem again. <laughs> he never, he stopped hazing us. We made him snort it. And somewhere, somewhere there are film pictures of Andy Bigford, who was the ski magazine editor in chief, all of us snorting Pisco. If you've never have, I recommend you stay away from it. But if you're really looking for a mind-altering experience that is a lot easier to find, even it's easier to find than your local CBD shops uh, these days, it'll change you forever. Another example of your competitive nature came out after Beaver Creek closed the ice rink for the evening. Yeah. We decided, well, that couldn't apply to us. Nope. <laughs> And before you went out on the rink, I'll never forget, you, you took the precaution of taking more than one issue of Ski Magazine, which mm -hmm. in those days was quite a robust publication, and put them around your shins. And I think you used either socks and duct tape or maybe both to hold them in place. And then you were ready for combat. <laughs> <laughs> and off you would yep. go for broom hockey. Ladies and gentlemen, while it was played purely in fun, 
It was an extremely violent game. <laughs> Joe cuts who outweighs me by, I don't know, several brackets on the any weight measure, took me into the boards that evening and I was wearing a brand new pair of Revos I'd just been given. They were really wonderful. That was the end of them. <laughs> and it also gave me a shiner that I really couldn't explain the next day. Yeah. Did you win that night? Of course we won. We were Ski Magazine when we were playing against Garnsey, who was the GM at Beaver Creek and invited us to play against his team. We had to win. We were Ski Magazine. We were we were nothing but fit athletic ski testers. It was far enough. For, it was far enough to go far enough ago to say, yes, we absolutely won that game. Hands down. <laughs> Destroyed him. Maybe it was another occasion, because I remember there was at least one occasion that was extremely unauthorized to the point where the constabulary decided to chase after us. Some escaped, not all. I think the aforementioned Felix might have been nabbed. So the shenanigans obviously went very deep. Was it the year before that that they had the escalator races? I think it was that was the same year that they had the escalators. They took Volant skis because at the time they were the worst skiing pair of skis and figured they could be the easy to get ruined and nobody would know the difference. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, race down the escalators at Beaver Creek. Yeah. You get a group of people that are good and fun and creative. And when that creativity goes awry or wants to get mischievous, it is still extremely creative. We don't become sticks in the mud just because we're going to get mischievous. We get creative with our, with our mischief. And ski races down the escalator were uh, followed by the security team chasing us through and people yelling and through rooms. And I want Felix McGrath out here right now. And he was hidden under a bed somewhere or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, a lovely time was certainly had by all. Before we conclude, and I know we're, we may be running long, dear listeners, but try to hang in there. Let's talk a little bit about equipment. Yeah. Uh, first of all, you've been very brand loyal to Nordica. How long have you been with Nordica? Uh, probably about 1994 when it, when it was Nordica skis or Nordica boots and Kessley skis. Yeah. So the boots did, in terms of brand recognition, at least uh, yeah. predate your association with them as a ski supplier. But Correct. when they did have a Nordica brand, you adopted it. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, it's a great relationship. Uh, the people that I've gotten to work with and, and the philosophy that everybody has in the US and North America about trying to build skis and boots and equipment comes from Giancarlo Zanata and the Italian family of Nordica and the people that are Florian Sear who builds the skis. There's just a, an amazing group of people that build stuff out of passion and for the right reasons. Talking about doing things out of passion, as you know, I do a little website called realskiers.com, mostly out of passion. Yes. And you've been a great supporter of mine since forever, which I deeply appreciate. And you also know that I've offered free subscriptions to PSA yep. members for several seasons now. Yep. Would, would you care to comment on how important you think it is for instructors to be well-informed about current equipment? I think it's critical. Again, like we talked about earlier, there might not be much that we can do about it in the moment. But when it comes to making recommendations to your students, making choices for yourself, knowing all what you can and understanding as much as possible so that you can make good choices and good recommendations, it's imperative because your skiing livelihood is beholden to, in a large part, to your equipment and your boots, especially, which is why I love some of the stuff that you write about boots and the fact that you 
have so much experience. Uh, and when you do fit a pair of boots, you take all of that into, into account to make a good choice for your, for the wear. Absolutely. One of my little projects several years ago, see 10 years ago now, was a book called Snowbird Secrets. And you were yeah. kind enough to write, uh, this is just part of what you wrote, incredibly thoughtful comments. Nowhere else will you understand the white dance as well as inside these scrolls. You will not be a complete alpine slider until you finish this book. Any residual takeaways from Snowbird Secrets? Well, I think the beauty of that book is you took a, a unique place like Snowbird that has a lure in and of itself up in the Cottonwood Canyons there. I think the beautiful part, Jackson, is that you take the reader through places that you ski and how to ski it and where to ski it and when and and with Dave, right? Dave, That's I don't right. Guru yeah. Dave, yep. Guru Dave. And you guys open up your brain and your hearts and your spirits about a place that deserves that level of recognition. And not only is are there little technique approaches, but there are tremendous tactical approaches and knowing when to go where. I feel like you took the local secrets and gave them away, which is a, a beautiful gesture in and of itself at a time when a place like Snowbird still hid some secrets and hid some gems. And you and, and Guru Dave were unafraid and saying, look, and here's where to go and here's when to go. And here's what this place is about. And here's why it's named what it is. And here's why it's as good as it is at this point of the day versus that time of the day. And if you're a snowbird skier or want to go to snowbird skier, you should read it. You learn about a place a little bit different about how to ski it, how to move or snowboard or how to move around a resort like snowbird because you can get it right. And it's an amazing day. And that same day, there's somebody who gets it wrong and they're like, this is tough. I think part of the lessons of the book also were to try to get people away from dissecting a turn and, yeah. and, to, and to engage in flow yeah. and, and get in harmony with the mountain. Yeah, 100%. And a place like Snowbird that has so many nooks and crannies and ups and downs and little gullies. And if you make your first turn, just if you make it here, the run opens up and kind of shows itself to you. Whereas if you don't make it here, if you focus on how to make a turn, it holds its secrets to its chest and it doesn't reveal it, the secret to it. And I feel like you guys did an amazing job of saying, look, don't worry about how you do it. Just do it over here first. And then what's behind that turn will open up and it'll be a perfect run. Whereas if you get caught up in that, how to make the perfect turn, it's not going to share its secret with you. Yeah, well, it's really well put. It was a beautiful book, too. I mean, it's it's just so well, so interesting how you, you guys speak about a place like Snowbird. Yeah, Thank you. Written. Appreciate that. You are, I would say, the most notorious <laughs> uh, PSIA symbol, if you will, of your, of your generation. But you're not the only great instructor that we have in this country. No. And there's several who I think we both hold in mutually high regard. Talk to me about what you glean from, say, John Clendenin's work in mogul instruction. Do you pull from that consciously, or do you just stand back in appreciation of it, or how does that work? 
being a student of the sport of skiing, but also of the vocation of instruction, you'd be a knucklehead if you didn't read all of what's written or is about written about the sport and the vocation about a bunch of different point of views. And some of the things that I glean from John, because he has a camp in Portillo and we talk while he's in Portillo about skiing and his idea of the love spot, I think is what he calls it. Um, <laughs> yeah, we would talk about it as the sweet spot of the ski and standing there and trying to stay in that place, I think is good, sound ski technique, no matter how you explain it. I mean, he's, he's John Clendenin. and he's a freestyle world, multiple world champion freestyle skier that went through the ski industry in its golden age when everything was consumed with utter disregard for any outcome. So he's got that experience in freestyle skiing and and he uses language that might be different, but I, I love the way that he talks about moving into a turn from your new turning ski. I love the idea of, of starting a turn with the foot that matters versus hanging on to a turn and worrying about finishing that last one that's in the past perfectly on the old foot, uh-huh. but let's get Let's get think about starting on the next foot, the new foot. I love that idea. The, the idea of being in the, the center of your ski is wonderful. The work that he puts into ski pole work and usage, uh, I think, is fantastic. There are plenty of examples of that. John is one. There's another person that I won't say his name because I think I don't really care for the person, mm-hmm. but I appreciate the contributions that he's made to skiing and the way that you look at skiing. And there are Today, there were people that were skiing today that did all kinds of things. Some of us went up, some of us went down to get things started. And as long as the ski does what you wanted to do in the snow, it's okay. Do it however it it works out and makes sense to you. The problems that I get is when a way becomes the way. Within PSIA, we can often end up in this is the way to do it. When you're looking at certifications and passing exams, I need to do it this way. I need to do it that way. That is slowly, I think, but very quickly gaining momentum of changing. But that's where I get in trouble when, and that's where I have, not where I get in trouble, but where I have problems is when it becomes the way to do it versus a way to do it. The cliche about skinning a cat is true. There are a hundred different ways to skin a cat. And I think, wait until the mountain tells you which way to skin it. And most people don't wait long enough. They just decide how they're going to skin it and hope it works out. The mountain will tell you how it should be skinned if you understand a bunch of different approaches and go about it that way, because then you're in harmony. Then you have flow. Then you work with the terrain and the snow conditions. And that's when things from different elements of the world, ski world, start to line up and support each other versus I'm just going to bring a bigger hammer to this thing and just beat my way into it. The mountain doesn't care much for that attitude. No, no. Yeah, it usually you end up with more bruises than smiles in a lot of cases because you just aren't paying attention to what the mountain or the snow or the terrain or, or the trees or the convolutions tell you. And that's the beautiful thing when you, when you see somebody go, oh, I see it. I can see this thing opening up in front of me and I'm going to go that way. And sometimes the world conspires against us in skiing, but oftentimes if you go about it the right way, the world will conspire for you. Yes. 
Yes. And it will, it'll open itself up to another turn, just as good as that one. Not because of how you did it, because of where you did it and where you did it there opens you and, and allows you to go right into the next one that's right here. And, but if you worry about how you did it, you're not going to see where you should do it. Good point. A couple last things before we bid adieu. What did ski testing all those years with Ski Magazine, what did, what did that process teach you? How did that inform your work? The beautiful thing about being able to ski, well, how many was it back then? I mean, we used to ski in oh, yeah. a week. We would ski over 100 pairs of skis. Yeah, we would just pound down the skis. It was crazy. Yeah. Over 20 pairs a day sometimes. Yeah. That's a job. That's work. That's one thing it taught me. You had, you had to be ready to go. That's a workload. Again, listening to what's under your foot, whether it's the snow or the mountain or the train, skiing on that many skis, because they were always so different. And you could tell, I mean, the beautiful part about the ski test then was that you got a lot of skis to get through and you made one run and you had your opinion about how it performed and you had your opinion on how that ski had to work based on who it was built for. So that's one thing I learned the process taught me about understanding who the consumer is and what it is they're looking for. It wasn't my job to, to tell the magazine, I like this ski because it worked for me. It was my job to tell the magazine, I like this ski because I feel like a person that skis like this could also like this ski. Then it was never about us and what I thought was good for me. It was about what could we find and the characteristics that were good for the consumer that might want to buy this ski compared to that ski or that ski. So that's one thing that it, it taught me to really consider the consumer and what their needs are at different levels. The other thing that I gleaned from it is pay attention to what the ski tells you it wants to do. If you spend an awful lot of time on a slalom ski and you move the way a slalom ski reacts, and then suddenly you get on a ski that has tip and tail rocker and goes from being 68 millimeters under the foot with nine meters of side cut to something that is 110 millimeters under the foot with a week of side cut. <laughs> and it's hard to get to that side cut because the tip and tail are all rockered. Don't expect to move the way that you moved on the slalom ski and get the same results from the, the powder ski. You got to understand that. I always find it fascinating. You'd see newer testers that would come through the ages, you'd start to see them hop on different skis. And the first couple of turns, they might stumble a little bit because they weren't paying attention to what the ski told them to do. They just moved the way that they're used to moving. And you, there was always a bit of awkwardness of, oh, this is a new dance partner and I don't know you and you don't know me and you're going to lead. I'm going to lead. Who's going to lead? Nobody's going to lead. We're both going to lead. <laughs> I mean, there's just a confluence of 18 different rivers raging together into one place and it's just harbor chop it's just a mess but then you could see them go over over the week go okay i need to pay attention to what the ski tells me i can get away with and then we'll be in sync and then i can start to push the envelope to find out what the ski is capable of based on what the reader is expecting or or this consumer could want now I can talk about the ski to them about what it could bring to their abilities and their successes. To wrap this up with a more personal bow, 
my dear listeners, I think would be interested in what I'm about to relate is we, I call it a fun family fact. <laughs> you, <laughs> you and your brother, Rob, are both lifelong skiers. Yeah. Which it superficially you'd say, well, then they're very much alike. It's <laughs> not so fast. <laughs> they're not exactly carbon copies of one another. But you share another truly remarkable trait. Because both of you have maintained two decade long relationships, maybe longer with the same significant other. Wait a minute. No, no. That's the, wait. It is not the same significant other. Well, not the same person. <laughs> yes, no, no. There you go. No, Perfect. no, no. <laughs> but each, each, each with their own significant other. I said, okay, we have a pair over here, ladies and gentlemen. We have a different pair over there. Yeah. How did you pull this off? Do you just not need any silver salad tongs or engraved toaster ovens, which would normally be accompanied by a some sort of ceremony? I can't remember the noun anymore, though a ceremony this might be called. What is the secret held by the Rogan brothers? First of all, my brother is a beautiful person. He's about the most kind-hearted. He's as cool as cool gets. And he will stop what he's doing to help somebody else. And I could talk about him forever because he's my brother. But as far as how it is that my brother and I are in this, the same, you know, it's easy. You're going to ask me, how is it that I maintain a relationship with Robin Barnes and not be married after 32 years of being together? Uh, it's because I love her to death. Uh, and I know that she feels the same. She just she, she just showed up in the room with a glass of wine and, and gave me, uh, yeah, okay, whatever. Okay, big deal. Whatever. I'm not saying that because my non-wife wife just walked into the house. Um, <laughs> but we share similar thought processes. We share similar likes. We get on each other's nerves. But at the end of the day, what we like about each other and ourselves is more in common than uncommon. And it's as easy as that. It's never in question. 32 years. Well, congratulations. That's, I mean, Stephanie and I have been together longer than that, but I've used legal bondage to hold her captive <laughs> under my roof. You know, there was probably a time when we believe could have, would have, and should have. My mom has conspired with her mother to say, look, we're just going to plan a wedding and invite those two. <laughs> but it works wonderfully for us. I, I love her to death, everything about her, good, bad, and, and indifferent. And, I'm, and, I, and I know that she feels the same. She's a skier. We are teammates together, a part of the, the national team for PSIA. She's an incredibly talented skier. She now has a new job within Vail Resorts as a director of skier services. And she's remarkable at that and bringing people together and doing the things that are important, like taking care of guests and worried about a, a guest experience and how a guest reacts to their day within the ski resorts at, at Heavenly here in, in Lake Tahoe. As a teacher, she's unbelievably gifted, inspires lots of people every day. So it's, it's easy to want to hang around that. Yeah, she's a pretty sweet person. I remember when I gave a short reading at Snowbird Secrets at, in Snowbird during the ski test one year, she was very touched by what I did. And I was very touched by her response. She's just a very, very genuine, yeah. open, uh, wonderfully accessible uh, human being. And I feel the same way about you, Michael. I think you are just an extraordinary gentleman and one of the finest people I've ever known. And I thank you for that friendship. And with that, dear listeners, I'm going to bid you all adieu this week. This is going to be a massive editing project. <laughs> well, hopefully there's some nuggets in there, Jackson. Uh, hopefully there's some nuggets where people can enjoy it. Because as you know, the time that we get to spend together is cherished and, and missed. And I look forward to our time either on a ski hill or on a golf course. 
Oh, <laughs> I'll spare our dear listeners this start, the wonderful story. <laughs> next time, I'll tell them about our tournament golf experience, which is reasonably priceless, all at my expense, I'm happy to say. We won. That's all that mattered. We did. We won in perhaps the most ignoble way imaginable, but nonetheless. Thank you again, Mike. It's always great to talk to you. My very best to Robin. Give her a big hug for me. And dear listeners, I will talk to you again next week. This has been Jackson Hogan with Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Thanks for listening.